And uh, so today we are going to uh, be continuing on in this series uh, that you guys kicked off last week uh, called Mixtapes and Love Letters. We're talking about how to have the best possible relationships. And, and the reality of it is we all want to have great relationships, but we don't always all have the tools with which to have those great relationships. And so sometimes, like, our heart and the desire for the relationship doesn't match up with our ability to make it happen and make it something good and make it something that's going to last and be healthy. And so uh, that's what the series is about. And I'm excited. I hope you come every single week. And if you have to miss for some reason um, that you grab the podcast, you listen, you catch up, and stay tuned with what's going on. But uh, today and tonight, I want you to take some notes. Write down something that jumps out at you. Uh, if you need to take a picture of the slides or whatever, you need to do like, uh, you know, man, whatever speaks to you, you're like, I, I, that's, that's a unique way to see that. Or I want to think about that more. Or I want to get a lower back tattoo of that idea. Whatever you want to do, <laughs> write it down so that you have it for later. And the title of my message is Pushing Buttons. Pushing Buttons. Some of you are like, that title pushes my buttons. Uh, my wife and I, uh, a while back, we, we were like, let's get out of town for a few days. We kind of planned this little getaway, just the two of us. How many of you that are parents, you love your kids, but you also just love leaving them behind? You know what I mean? Anybody else? Yeah. Um, and so we're like, let's, we're gonna, let's, let's just do a little trip. Um, you know, just a couple days, go down to a, a Hilton property, shout out to them, okay, and just spend some time. Just, that was just for you. Um, and just spend some time, the two of us. And we told our kids way in advance like, so that they could mentally prepare for us being gone. But my son, he, like, my, my oldest son, Cohen, he just, he likes things rigid, right? Uh, like, we have never sent him and will not send him to a military school. He acts like he's already at one. Like, he just in his own mind, he just likes everything a certain way. He's very regimented. And so he just blocked it out. When we told him, he blocked out that it was going to happen eventually someday. And when the day actually got there, and we were sitting all, all three of our kids down, and we're like, hey, it's tomorrow. And my wife takes out her binder. You know what I mean? She's very organized. She's like, this is what's going to happen while we're gone. Here's what's going on. If somebody stops breathing, call these numbers. This is what's a, Here's this medical card. Here's what's happening. And like she, we're explaining them day by day what's going on. And my daughter is excited because she's everything's a party to her. And my youngest son, he's just like, he's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And my middle son is, is just visibly upset. And he starts crossing his arms. And he's just like staring at us. He's squinting his eyes up to communicate. He's like, he's unhappy. And he just keeps switching the gaze back between my wife and I. And she gets to this part where she's just like, and then, you know, the next day, then so-and-so is going to pick you up from school, and his arms are just crossed, and he finally just can't contain, he speaks out, and he's like, I'm not getting in the car, because I hate her. And we're like, oh. First of all, he does not hate this lady, okay? He loves her, and she's just mad. He's upset in the moment. And I, I realize, like, I'm trying to pull everyone together. And so I'm like, hey, man, I get that you don't always like it when we go away and, and that whole deal. But, like, I, I need you to pull it together, okay? Like, we did give you a heads up. And I need you, while we're gone, promise me, okay, promise me that you are going to be kind and compassionate and considerate, okay, while we're away. I need you to promise me that. And he stands up and puffs up his tiny little chest and he's looking at me right in the eyes, and he just goes, I cannot make that promise. <laughs> and we were all just kind of, my wife starts laughing right away. 
And I'm like, come on, babe, unified front. What are we doing right now? You're going to have to take a time out in your room, okay, if you can't pull it together. And he just seems upset. And I also should tell you that he's only wearing briefs at this moment. And so it, like, it undercuts, like, the, the authority he's wanting to have in this moment. I'm like, this ensemble is lessening the point you're trying to make, right? And so I'm like, you, gotta, you, can't, you can't be on it. you got to go to your room. And so he goes off to his room. And as he's, like, sulking off to his room, um, Tegan, my daughter, it, like, looks around, and she's just like, what was that? <laughs> and we were like, right? And she said it out of earshot, which was a smart move for her. Um, but I, I bring this up because, you know, I, I would wager that uh, this isn't just something that my son has done or something that kids do. I think we, ha- we all do this sort of thing in our lives. And, and maybe when you did it, it didn't look exactly like this. Maybe you have more than just briefs on, okay? Maybe it wasn't this subject matter, hopefully, okay? I don't know what your life looks like. But I, I, what I would say is that you've had a moment where someone said or did something that for whatever reason just struck a nerve in you. And in that moment, you just snapped, and you lashed out. And maybe there was even part of you that wasn't even sure why it was happening or why you were doing it, but you were. And then maybe later, you know, if you're a little bit like me, you were retelling the story to somebody else. You're like, and then this happened, and then they said this. And while you're retelling the story, that person had the audacity to suggest that maybe you were overreacting a little bit because the thing that they did to you wasn't as bad as you were making it out to be. And in that moment, you were like, we are not friends anymore. Because you are literally the worst. Your job is to have my back no matter what. Even if I commit murder, okay? Like, listen, we're in this for life. Why do we do this? Like, why does this happen to all of us? Like, where does it come from? Like, why do different things set different ones of us off in different ways? Why is it that somebody else can let a certain thing go, but you can't? Like, they can let it slide off their back, but, like, it just you, it, 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 something inside you is, is boiling inside of them. Why is that? Like, why do we seem to have the same sorts of fights inside of the same sort of relationship structure again and again and again and again? What, what, what is going on? And I, I don't know. So let's close in prayer. God, I was like, <laughs> what a horrible, what if I was just like, good, good luck, <sighs> man, I gotta, I'm gonna go home to California, so sorry to stir all that up, maybe pray more, I don't know, I mean, I just, <sighs> now, here's the reality, like, we, we, we are not gonna be able to answer all of these questions tonight. Um, specifically in the context of your life. But there is this Old Testament story and some things that Jesus and some of the apostles said in the New Testament that I do think can point us in the right direction to diagnose what's going on and how Jesus wants to help us through to the other side and why it's worth it in the end to do so. And so uh, we're going to look at at Genesis chapter 30 uh, tonight, um, verses uh, 1 through almost through 30. So we're going we're gonna to skip around a little bit. Genesis 30, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, and if not, we'll put it on the screen for you. Genesis, the first book, right? So right after the open where your grandma's like, two Sanchez, and then it's all that. And then you got, and then all of the different, you know, the table of contents. Okay, um, Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation. It says, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, is her husband, she became jealous of her sister. And she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. It's already getting good, right? Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He asked. He's the one who's kept you from having children. See, that's not necessary, right? There's just so much layered in here that I don't always know where to start. But first off, I would tell you this. This story will make way more sense to you if you think of it like an ancient soap opera, okay? Because that is really, that's what it is. Um, And, you know, what is a soap opera but an exaggerated human drama? That's that's what's going on. And the reason that it hooks us, I mean other people, is that... (laughs) Don't put me in that category, okay? Um, There's a couple reasons. The first is that um, I think they hook us because, you know, the plot lines, they're so ridiculously unbelievable, right? It's so far-fetched and over-the-top and crazy that you have enough distance from it that you're like, that, these people are really crazy, right? But the, the other reason why we're drawn in to soap opera-type stories is because they're also strangely relatable. And it's the contrast of these two things at the same time that allow us to see our own story in the context of somebody else's exaggerated story. And that's why we're looking at this this evening. And so in this particular story, we're dropped into the middle of a fight between a husband and a wife. They're trying to have kids. It's not, it's not working out. And it is a big deal. It's always a big deal, but especially in this culture and especially to her, even more so because her sister just had a baby. And so now she feels left out. And this is complicated even further by the fact that they happen to be married to the same exact man. Game of Thrones vibes, anyone? Like this is... It's getting out there. And so the wife is upset, and she's so upset that in a fight she yells the phrase, give me children or I'll die. This is a real thing that an adult person said in a real argument. It's like the best thing she had. And then her husband, he doesn't appreciate the accusation, and so he's trying to figure out the best way to respond. So he decides to go with sarcastic deflection, and that doesn't work good, okay? What am I, God? It's his fault. And it just, it gets, it doesn't go well, okay? So, you know, honestly, most of us, we've, we've not been in this situation before. I hope not. You know, I, I, if you have, I need to know more about your amazing life, okay? Let's talk afterwards and just give me some details. Um, but the reality of it is, the scenario that seems so ridiculously unbelievable is also strangely relatable because we all have had a fight that follows this same formula. I mean, down at the heart of it, the core of what's going on here. And the formula is this. Somebody, in the course of a conversation, somebody's buttons gets pushed, and then they lash out by pushing someone else's buttons, and then that person pushes back. And then the whole thing escalates, and it goes back and forth and gets bigger and bigger and more out of control. It's human nature. Because the Bible isn't just about something that happened. It's about what always happens. It's a mirror that gets held up to human nature and says, this is what it looks like to be a person. And the further back you go in the Bible, the darker some of this stuff gets. And we're in Genesis, so it's about to get even more weird, okay? Okay. 
In fact, I think you've probably even said this phrase before, like, you're pushing my buttons. You are pushing. Don't push my buttons, okay? Don't push your mother's buttons. Jeff, you are pushing my buttons. Sorry if your name's Jeff. But you know what you did. It's on you, buddy. It's on you. What does that even mean? Like, what, when we say button, I mean, it's a euphemism, right? It's a shorthand. It's a way of saying, like, hey, watch it, because that, you're, you're kind of, you're tiptoeing up to a trigger for me. And when a small action sets off a big emotion, a pre-existing tri- trigger's been tripped. When a small action sets off a big emotion, a pre-existing trigger's been tripped. And I know you're thinking, like, yeah, that's the issue. That's what I'm trying to say. Just stop pushing my buttons, okay? Sermon over. Like, that's all I need is they just need to stop doing that. It's them. But I think it's bigger than that because it's not just about them. It's about you too. Because the reality of it is your buttons are a preview of your baggage. Your buttons are a preview of your baggage. And we want to say, hey, stop pushing my buttons. But a lot of us don't want to take the time to actually investigate the button itself. What does it mean? How did it get there? Why is that a problem for me? You ever learn about what someone's buttons are the hard way? Not fun. Not my favorite. I wonder if you've ever accidentally stepped on an emotional landmine of someone else's and just about blew yourself to bits. You found yourself thinking in that moment, just like my daughter, like, where where did that come from? What is going on right now? Was all of that that just happened aimed at me? Right? Is all of that about this moment right here? Because it it felt like maybe I hit a nerve or I, I, I tripped a wire or I triggered an alarm or I pushed a button. Like, what is going on? So what is Rachel's button, and where did it come from, and who or what installed it? Like, how do you arrive at, give me children or I will die? And I think to understand this, we've got to rewind a little bit. We've got to do a flashback and kind of see where she came from. And so um, if you turn back to just a chapter before chapter 29, as it comes before 30, because that's how numbers work. Um, This is 29 and then 30. And we'll kind of ask these questions of the text, right? Genesis 29, in verse 16, it says this, Laban, this is the dad in the story, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. And this is like a, like a nice bible way of saying, she ugly, okay? <laughs> like we're like, we don't want to put that in there. That sounds... Maybe just say, like, there's not really any sparkle in her eyes. People are like, oh, I got you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'm following, I'm following. It says, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. And that's a bible way of saying, she hot, okay? It's like, we, can't, we definitely can't put that in there, right? Verse 28, it says, a week after Jacob married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. And Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. Verse 30, so Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. Now, this is clearly crazy what's going on here. But I think if you were to place yourself inside of this story, 
and imagine what it would feel like to be these people, I think the first thing that you would realize is there is a lot of pain in these people's past. You know, one sister is older, but, the, you know, the younger one, she's prettier. And they're, they're constantly being compared to one another by their community and even by their own family. Which is hard enough, right? And then, and then their dad goes and marries them off to the same man who wanted to be with the pretty one, but who was tricked into taking the other one too. And Leah, she's already insecure. And now she feels unwanted. Her husband is not shy uh, and very public about the fact that he openly loves her pretty sister more. But then as it turns out, the pretty one has a flaw. She can't have children. She can't get pregnant. But her older sister can. And so the older sister feels vindicated. And then now the younger sister, for the first time in her life, begins to feel deeply insecure and broken. And no one is happy. You ever learn a little bit about someone's backstory and, and suddenly all of their surface behavior starts to make so much sense to you? And you're like, oh, okay. Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Now that I get why. And then this, okay, there's a history there. There's something else going on there. It's not just this thing. And this is how you and I work too. Because the reality is unprocessed pain from the past produces emotional triggers in the present. Unprocessed pain from the past produces emotional triggers in the present. As it turns out, like your biggest fights aren't primarily about what you are fighting about. That's a smokescreen. That's just a trigger. That's just something that pushed the button, but it's wired to something deeper. It's not really about the wet towel on the floor. Okay, it's not really about the credit card spending. It's not really about being five minutes late. It's not really about failing to compliment the new chinos. It's a, it's a little bit about that. It's a little bit about some of those things, but like, like a li- just a tiny little bit. And it's mostly the reality, the big reaction you got is because you unknowingly hit a nerve. And the reality is if you are unaware of and unwilling to address the real root, you will find yourself recycling the same fight over and over again, and each time the exchanges will escalate as the base wound becomes more raw. And some of you know what this is about. I don't need to tell you this because you're living it. You're stuck in a cycle with somebody. And when you're trying to, like, echo the fight to a friend, they're like, I don't get it. Why were you fighting about that? And the reality is, you're not fighting about that. You're fighting about the thing that's way underneath that, the thing that neither one of you want to acknowledge and address and deal with. And that's why escalation happens. That's why things keep getting worse. That's why, like, the triggers, like, they keep getting quicker. That's why the buttons keep multiplying because there's something underneath. And remember, this Old Testament story is a soap opera, so you know the escalation is going to be extreme. And let me just tell you, it does not disappoint. Spoiler alert, okay? (laughs) Genesis chapter 30, back to verse 3. It says this, Then Rachel told him, Take my maid, Bilhah, and sleep with her. She'll bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. 
And so Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. He's a, he's a team player. Okay, so he's just like, whatever you guys need for the family. Don't make it weird, guys. Don't make it. Just reading the Bible here, okay? Verse 5, Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with the son. Rachel named him Dan. Kind of a fail for a Bible name. Just throwing that out there. Dan, really? Seriously. For she said, God has vindicated me. In other words, she named her kid In Your Face. That's the kid's name. I'm going to name you In Your Face. Hey, sister, you want to meet my son? His name is In Your Face. I hope you think of that every time you see his face. It's crazy. Where are we at? What are we talking about? Okay. <laughs> it says, as she says, he has heard my request and given me a son. Verse 7, it says, then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, a little bit better on the Bible names. For she said, I've struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. <laughs> what? Again, like names, we just hear them as a name. But when people gave people names uh, back in the day, it would, they, when you heard somebody's name, you heard the story that went with it. Like today, it's just, it's just a name. It doesn't mean anything. Then it was like, that's your destiny. That's who you are. That tells the story of your existence. And for the rest of this kid's life, he had to tell people like, hey, what's your name? And he had to be like, basically, well, my name is, um... you see, my mom is actually, she's a friend of my real, my other mom, because she was mad at my sister, and then she was trying to get back at her, and so then they had me, so I'm a spite baby, and, and then like, and then they had me, and then they gave me that name, and she was like, I'm winning, you know, and and then they, that's, that's why it doesn't all fit on the name tag. <sighs> My family's weird. Let's just play at your house. This is stupid. Like this. Verse 9, meanwhile... Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, and so she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And soon Zilpah presented him with a son, and Leah named him Gad. For she said, how fortunate am I? Back at you, right? Verse 12, then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher. For she said, what joy is mine, now the other women will celebrate with me. In other words, now everybody will validate that I'm winning and a little bit better than you. This is crazy, right? And it seems a little bit funny to us because we're not living it. But as, as much as it's crazy, it's sad. It's heartbreaking. Like with the, these two women with their insecurities calling the shots, both sisters escalate things. And they compromise their character and they throw away their self-respect. They become obsessed with outdoing the other person. And there's so much collateral damage. They hurt others. They hurt themselves. They hurt their future family. They go round and round wanting to believe that this next accomplishment, which isn't even really theirs, it's a friend of theirs, is going to somehow be the cure to the heartache inside of them. But it never is. 
Because neither of these women are self-aware enough to diagnose the source. They're convinced that the problem is the other person pushing their buttons, not their own refusal to acknowledge and address the buttons themselves. How is this not our story? How many times have you got into it with somebody, whether they live with you, whether they work with you, right? whether it's somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your greater family of origin, and you're like, it's them. They're the problem. They know what the buttons are. They keep pushing them. If they would stop, this would stop. It's them. It's the other person. Because we don't want to do the hard work of looking inside and saying, why is the button there? Why does this bother me so much? What is going on inside of me? Maybe I need to look there. Maybe that's the start. Maybe I need to search for the source. You know, self-aware people understand that my frustration with you exposes the fear in me. My frustration with you exposes the fear in me. I want you to think about this. The next time somebody, like, puffs up their chest and attacks you, what they're really saying with all this angry bravado is, I'm scared. I'm afraid. And the same is true of you. When you attack, when you push back, when that little action sparks a big emotion, that anger is a smokescreen for your fear. Because you don't want to be vulnerable enough to admit it and address it. And things won't change until you do. I wonder if you were honest in those moments where your fear boils over, like what fear button is being pushed in you? And I, I get it, they made you mad. Why, why did that make you mad? I wonder what kind of breakthrough you might experience if you stopped using anger to avoid facing your fear. I wonder if you, you actually decided that you were going to turn inward and you were going to finally look that person in the face. You were going to actually look at yourself and actually say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. That's what's going on here. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to be abandoned again. I've had so many people that I cared about who left me, and I, I, don't, I can't do that again. I'm afraid of being taken advantage of. I'm afraid of giving everything and you giving nothing. I'm afraid that, I, like, maybe you don't really love me deep down. That I'm leaned in and, and maybe, maybe you're not. Like, I'm afraid that, that you're maybe not going to be able to take care of us. I'm afraid that, that you're trying to control me or manipulate me and I, I won't have it. I'm afraid that, that maybe... I'm not what you want or need, and maybe I never will be. Maybe I don't have the capacity to be. I'm afraid, and that's why I'm coming off as angry. And of these two women, Leah comes the close to, to kind of waking up to this reality. She doesn't completely, but she, she edges up to it. There's this scene in Genesis 30, verse 15, where... There was kind of this, this thought in this society, like if you, 
were having trouble with fertility, if you could get some mandrakes and boil them down and crush it up and kind of make this tea, you could drink it and it would kind of push you into a state of fertility and heighten your chances of being able to get pregnant. And so now these women, their kids are now trying to uh, get their wives pregnant. And so they're trying to get the mandrake because they want to have more grandkids. It's not just enough to have more kids. I got to have more grandkids than you now to prove my worth, right? And so uh, she gets some mandrakes and then the other kid steals the mandrake. It's like this whole convoluted plot, which is why we skipped over a lot of verses to get here. Because when you're reading it, you're like, what is happening right now? And then Leah says this. She finally boils over and she says, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now will you steal my son's mandrakes too? And she doesn't fully realize it, but what she's saying is like, this, this isn't about you stealing my mandrakes. It's about you stealing my man, Drake. His name is Jacob, but like it just feels, it rolls better. Let's change it. She's like, yes, I, I'm, I'm frustrated with you. I, like, I, I don't appreciate what you did. I think it's wrong, but honestly, the reaction is disproportionate to the thing that you did because underneath it all, I'm afraid that something is broken in me. I'm afraid that I am unlovable, and so much of my life has reinforced that maybe that is true. And in fact, it's conditioned me to now go and look for evidence that I'm unlovable. And this is just another reason. This is another, uh, another factoid for me to tuck away and say, that's why I'm not lovable, and I never will be. And I hate you for calling that fear to the surface. I wonder if you've ever had someone pull an old frustration like this into a new fight. Because it's really a trick question. Like, we, we all do it all the time. The, the question is, do you realize you're doing it or not? Because most of us don't. We don't realize that this really isn't just about this. And the truth is, if you don't make peace with your past it will perpetually poison your present. If you don't make peace with your past, it will perpetually poison your present. And I think we can all agree that is true, and it, there's also too many peace in that statement. It's, it's true, but I was just like, I, I, I made it. I was really, I was like, P -p -p porky pig. I was afraid <laughs> as I was trying to get through perpetually poison present. Peter Piper picked that patch of poisonous peacemaking. <laughs> and here's the thing. We're not just talking about the, the, the past that you need to make peace with. is isn't just your past with that person in front of you. Sometimes the, the, the bulk of the fight that you're having has nothing to do with even that person or the occasion. The bulk of this fight has to do with an old wound from an old boyfriend. It has to do with the failure of your first marriage. It has to do with their dismissive dad that they've never even told you about. It has to do with something shaming that an old gymnastics coach told them like a long time ago. It has to do with the way that they were treated in junior high and the impression that left on them during those very impressionable years. It, it, it might have to do with the fact that all growing up, everyone told you that your sister was better and prettier than you. 
And unfortunately, like these two women in this story, they never fully tunnel out of this self-destructive cycle. What a horrible fate to just be stuck, just to be trapped. To have the relationship that you're in, the most significant relationship, be sabotaged by things that have nothing to do with the relationship. What a sad thing. So how do we tunnel out? How do we get free? I think here's a start. The next time you're triggered, honestly ask yourself, what fear button is this pushing in me? What fear button is this pushing in me? And then be honest with yourself, with the person that you're overreacting to, and with God about what it really is. And, and, and sit in that vulnerability, exposed and unprotected in that moment, and allow God to wrap his love around you and whisper to you, peace, be still. John, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' best friends, one of the very first followers of Christ, wrote this in 1 John 4, 18. He said, there's no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear. And consequently, this is the same John who also famously wrote one of the most profound phrases, I think, in all of literature that you will ever find. He's the first person to ever say this and call this truth to life. He was the one who said, God is love. And when you understand that, you, could, what, you realize what he's really saying in, in 1 John 4.18 is that there's no fear in God, but our perfect God drives out fear. And he's saying, in Christ, when you lean into and embrace and fully accept the love of Christ, the pain from your past doesn't get the last word about your present or your future. You get to have a new relationship when you fully surrender all your old stuff to God. He's beckoning us, come out of hiding and begin healing. And I know you might be looking at your life and just thinking like, I I'm glad I heard this sermon. So I I'm going to send this. This is for some people I know. I'm going to send this to them. They, they need this so much. They've got some issues. But my life's going great. Like, I'm great. Everything's going good for me. I feel like things are fine. My life's working out. And, and I would ask you, is it working for the people around you too? Or are they walking on eggshells? Are they tiptoeing around you? Like, and, and is that the way you want people, the people that you love, to be forced to relate to you? As if every time they're in their pre your, your presence, they're, they're trying to like, you know, disable a bomb and hope it doesn't go off. Maybe it's time to begin addressing the root. And if you're a Christ follower, it is not a suggestion, it's an expectation. An expectation to do the inner work necessary, as hard as it might be, in order to embrace God's love for you so that you can love others like Jesus loves you. You see, your past may explain your behavior, but it doesn't excuse it. You are called to something higher, something better, something greater. Jesus calls you not to treat other people according to how they've treated you, but to treat them according to how he has treated you, in which he lays down his life and offers it up for you. In the midst of your angry aggression towards him, he gives you love. 
because he has the insight to see that the anger is a smokescreen. It's a distraction. And Jesus refuses to be distracted by the things you're waving in front of his face. And says, I know what's behind that. I know where this button goes. When are we going to talk about the baggage? When are you going to open your heart up and let me get to the root of the thing? Because can't you see the havoc? It's wreaking on every relationship and every person and every connection you deeply care about. Isn't it time to finally deal and stop living in denial? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, never pay back evil with evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Not just the three people who have your back, even when you're doing stuff that you know you shouldn't be doing, and they kind of do too, but they're backing you anyway. He's saying, live a life in that everyone can see that you're being honorable. You were wronged, but you did the honorable thing in return. He goes on to say, in verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Everyone. And I, I want to just expand for a minute your definition of everyone. Everyone, including yourself. God wants you to live at peace with you. And all the splintered and fractured versions of you. And some of us, we're trying to live at peace with other people and we are not at peace with ourselves because there are past reiterations of us that we have locked in a corner because they were hurt and we felt like they were weak and we are upset and ashamed about what they did or what was done to them. And God is saying like, hey, hey, do everything you can to live at peace with everyone beginning with you because you will only have as much peace with them as you have in you. He says in verse 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And this is what we're called to do, to conquer evil, not with our anger, but by doing good. So what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to live at peace with other people who seem like they have a lot of triggers. Anybody know people with a lot of triggers? Don't point to them if they're here. It'll be so weird on their way home. It's like, man, they have so many buttons, uh, like, and, uh, like related to so many issues, it feels like they're multiplying. And here's what I would suggest. Own your actions and know that the nerve you struck in them may have little to do with you. Own your actions, what you did, the part you played, and know that the nerve you struck in them may have little to do with you. You don't need to tell them that, by the way. It may just make it worse. I, I, I see what you're saying, but the reason why you're upset is just because I accidentally triggered your fear of ending up like you're controlling sorceress of a mother, which it feels like it's going that way, okay? No, that's not helpful. Instead, ask yourself, how does it feel to be them? Because you will take it less personally when you realize it's not all about you. They have a history, and like you, their, their life is full of landmines and buttons and triggers and nerves and, and tripwires that they may not even know exist and so have compassion. And part of that compassion is avoiding 
intentionally pushing those buttons for their sake and for yours. But if and when you do, and you will, like I did with my kid, be big enough and humble enough and Christ-like enough to apologize. After my son went to his room, I gave him a minute to cool off. I'm not going to go in there right away. After about 10 minutes, I went into his room, and he's, first of all, he's ripped everything off of his bed and thrown it on his brother's bed. He's just laying on the springs. Like, this is torture for you. I don't know. I see the point you're trying to make, but I sat down next to him, and I just sat in the silence. I put my hand on his shoulder, and he was like, eh. I just said, hey, I know this is hard for you. I know you don't like it when we go away. You know, I, I, told, you, I told you guys a long time ago, and I just thought, like, oh, he'll remember, but, like, I should have I followed up before today. And I realized that this has caught you off guard, and I don't want to do anything that makes you feel like you're feeling right now. Because I love you. My son, like, takes the hands off in front of his face, and he's, like, starting to tear up a little bit. I said, what, what, what's really going on? And he said, I don't, I don't like it when you guys leave. I like things the way they are. And I just, like, I'm nervous. Like, what if you go away and you have so much fun that you don't come back because there's some, there's some kids at my school, their dads, they never came back. And it's like in this moment, the shield of anger begins to drop and I see below the surface and in that moment, I see the tenderness and the vulnerability of his fear. And even at eight, we're good at hiding it, aren't we? I pulled him in close and I was like, I'm, I'm so I don't ever want you to feel that way. There is no amount of fun I could ever have anywhere else that would make me not want to come home. I would never do that to you. That's not something I want you to be afraid of. That's not, that's not something that's going to happen to you in this family. I gave him a big hug. And then as I'm hugging him, I said, do you think that maybe that was the best way to communicate that feeling? And he was like, no. <laughs> I was like, hey, me and you are good, but like, you, I think you have some apologies to make. I think you need to go make it right with them. Because this is who God is. This is what Jesus came to do, to reconcile relationships, to put things back together. This is why we don't repay evil with evil, because when you repay evil with evil, it ends up in this match like between two sisters that escalates and escalates and escalates, and nobody gets healing, and nobody ends up happy, and everybody's unhealthy. And Jesus is like, I've come to bring you something new, something better. I've come to model for you a better way of being, a better way of living. In which when someone throws all the evil they can handle at you, you push it aside. You see right through it. You see the fear and the pain below it. And you lean in to help heal that. 
with your love. And you can only do that when you have fully embraced the love that God has for you. And that's what I want to pray into your life today as we close off this segment of the service. That God would awaken you to the reality that the buttons being pushed in your life are indicators that you've got more stuff to surrender. That your Savior is saying, let's go a little bit deeper. Like heaven is settled. Let's talk about making life here on earth with the people you're sharing it with as good as it possibly can be. Let's talk about extending to them something that maybe they don't have. Let's talk about life to the full. Let's talk about bringing heaven to earth. Let's talk about these things. And I pray this morning for your life that God would begin to open you up and you would have the courage to be vulnerable enough to say, like, God, like, do whatever you need to do. God, heal whatever you need to heal. God, help me face it. Help me admit it. Help me acknowledge it. And God, help me work through it so I can give something better to those around me than was given to me. Would you bow your heads around this room tonight?